Hey, Adam, uh, listen, uh, Negan won't be around this week again. He's off doing a really important work in another Canadian city. And, uh, but the good news is we have a really cool interview this week with Winnipeg Mayor Scott Gillingham, who's going to tell us how he's going to open Portage in Maine to pedestrians. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Listen, and I think really the only thing that we need to do in Negan's uh, absence is I do think we need to change the name of the podcast. Okay. What are you thinking? Well, you know, I mean, he's doing a lot of important work. His book is coming out this spring. He teaches at the university and that's important work. So I don't want to take his name off it, but I do have an idea. Okay. Uh, Negan and the Loneliest Ranger. Well, it has a certain ring to it. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents... In partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. You know, I, I always get into trouble when I misuse the term irony. So is it ironic that we are today beneath, more or less, beneath the intersection of Portage and Maine, on a day when Mayor Winnipeg Mayor Scott Gillingham has made a rather seismic announcement about the future of Portage in Maine and that he's agreed to join us on the podcast this morning. Maybe it's just fortuitous. It, it's quite the timing, quite remarkable timing. You're right, Dan, that, uh, that today of all days, uh, I'm here with you, uh, do, doing this podcast, but thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. No, thank, no problem. Um, so why don't you walk us through the, uh, elevator pitch on what's happened? Uh, you are now in receipt of some important information, uh, and that has caused you to rethink your own vision for what should happen to the intersection. We, the city council, has been waiting on a report from our public service for several years, actually, on the total cost to repair the membrane, which is right underneath the intersection of Porta Germain. The, the, the membrane uh, was put in place 45 years ago, and it basically keeps water out of, out of the concourse, also called the circus by many. That membrane has, has failed after 45 years. There was an agreement in place back in 1979 when the concourse opened up and the underground opened up with, with the property owners uh, in, in the area. It was a 40-year agreement. We're at 45 years. So that agreement has expired and, quite frankly, the infrastructure has expired as well. It's, it's, it's beyond its, its life. We need to, we've been asking for the cost to repair, replace that membrane. We now have the cost that it would be $73 million at least to replace the membrane underneath Portage of Maine. Now, is, and to that's do, just for the concrete con, a concourse membrane? That's a concourse membrane. And, and then also there, there's a few other elements that, that make up that cost, including uh, traffic uh, measures that would have to be put in place because to replace the membrane, you've got to rip up Portage of Maine at grade, like at the surface, in segments. And that means that uh, we would be looking at up to five years of traffic construction, chaos, delays, lane closures right in Portage of Maine. In, in light of the fact that it'd be $73 million to replace this membrane, and we'd have to do it again in 30 to 40 years because that's, that's how long the membrane would last, and we're looking at up to five years of traffic delays, that's information I didn't have in 2018. Voters didn't have in 2018 mm-hmm. when the plebiscite happened. I did not have that information when I ran for mayor in 2022. In light of that information, I'm saying now, it's time to 
decommission the concourse and to open Portage and Main to pedestrian traffic. So a couple of interesting points here. Number one is the, the process by which you would officially reopen the intersection, uh, you're proposing a, uh, a vote at council uh, to get it done. So not another plebiscite. This is not really an issue of, of what we want. Uh, you're sort of introducing this as a, like we need to do this or otherwise we're going to be spending you know, an enormous amount of money. So that, so uh, no plebiscite, it, it'll be debated and voted on the floor of council. No plebiscite, it becomes a council decision. I think it's the practical decision. I think if the average voter in Winnipeg had this information that we're looking at $73 million for this work, we'd have to do it again in 30 to 40 years and five years of traffic chaos. Uh, you know, I think voters, more voters would have said open it to pedestrian traffic. The timing is important as well. Uh, what I'm what I'm going to be asking our public service to do, and I'm working with Councillor Sherry Rollins to put this motion in place, asking our public service to prepare to to get everything ready so that Port Germain can be open to pedestrian traffic in the summer of 2025. That timing is important because that's also the timing that our transit master plan, the next step, is, is put in place where we basically flip the switch and go to from our current system to a spine and feeder system. When we go to a spine and feeder system in, in June of 2025, that will change the way buses go through Portage of Maine. And in fact, it will be much more efficient uh, bus routes through Portage of Maine. So the timing, I think, is important as well. So you mentioned that this is information that we didn't have back in 2018 when there was a plebiscite attached to the, the civic election but, uh, ballot. But what we did know, we did actually know that we didn't know these things, uh, if that makes any sense. So uh, the, the forces that were campaigning for the reopening of the intersection and some prescient members of the local media uh, were actually thundering uh, on this point that uh, we didn't have the final engineering, we didn't know the full extent of the damage or how much it would cost to um, uh, fix things. And and so that it was, at the very least, it was premature to be asking the city, uh, city residents, to vote on this thing. And it, without pointing fingers at anybody. But is, is that a, a fair comment that really 2018 was not the right time to have that vote? I, I think a lot of individuals in Winnipeg for sure will be looking back, uh, and, and fair, to, to 2018 and the plebiscite, whether we should have had it or didn't. Uh, I think what is important now is that, as you mentioned, we knew we, had, we didn't have the information. Now we do have the information, and we're looking at you know significant price tag uh, and all the other things that I've just laid out a couple of times already. And so I'm, you know, I am, I'm asking council to look at this today in light of the information we do have today and in light of what this would mean for the future. That to me, the, the practical and the best decision is to say, let's decommission the concourse. Let's open this uh, to, to pedestrian traffic mm-hmm. at, at grade. Um, let's make sure we work hard to do it in time for uh, the, the change we're going to make to our, our transit system as well. And think about really the future of uh, of this intersection and our downtown and traffic movement. So, uh, this is right today. You're expressing your own view uh, on this, informed uh, with all the information now. 
Um, you obviously, uh, if Councillor Rollins is involved in helping to draft a, a, a council motion, uh, we can assume that that she is like-minded. Uh, so a couple of questions. Number one, this there, there hasn't really been a discussion about this at EPC uh, yet. Uh, and uh, have you canvassed, though, other members of council to find out, uh, you know, what's going to happen? Because uh, I'm, uh, you know, this isn't prescient because <laughs> I think he's already said it, but I think Council Russ White is going to make a motion for another plebiscite. So th- that is one of the risks here is you're throwing it onto the floor of council and it, it could, it could potentially go in a number of different directions. You feel confident though, that there's the support on council to move in the direction you've outlined. You, you, there, I've, I've spoken to uh, many members of council, most, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. Uh, just uh, first of all, I wanted to inform them of what was happening today. The, the you know at the time of this this taping uh, that, that I was going to be making this this announcement, and some of them you know immediately said, "Look, we support uh, opening Portage of Maine to pedestrian traffic and not spending the, the seventy three million and having to spend it again." Uh, others said, "You know, they need some time with the report." Uh, for sure, I, I believe that there'll be some, even some members of the, my executive policy committee that will not be in favor of opening to Portage of Maine. Mm-hmm. I respect that. This mm-hmm. is a this is a uh, decision that an issue that has been um, dealt batted around for a long time and people mm-hmm. have taken positions but I do believe that enough members of council would be supportive to to approve this and to make this change to open it to open this intersection to pedestrian traffic so before we started the interview you and I were talking about some of the information that floated around in 2018 that somehow was not persuasive uh, in the debate and that, and information that has changed slightly. Like back in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, one of the biggest frustrations, I think, about the debate over Portage and Maine was this idea that it was the biggest and busiest intersection in the city and that throwing pedestrians across it was going to cripple, you know, uh, uh, traffic. I think at that time it was the third busiest and maybe the fourth largest intersection. But you said you've gotten some new numbers now about about Portage in Maine. Well, traffic actually uh, since the pandemic uh, has has reduced, and so the traffic flows through Portage in Maine uh, is lower now, or lower now than they were in in 2018. Uh, so so things have changed, and uh, work patterns. And mm-hmm. people working downtown, uh, you know, that, that number has been reduced. And so there's this traffic. The, I mean, the intersection now used to be the third busiest. It's now the sixth busiest. And I, granted, absolutely, Portage of Maine is central to our city. Mm-hmm. It has historic significance. Many Winnipeggers, in fact, uh, have an emotional connection to Portage mm-hmm. of Maine. But at the end of the day, it's just an intersection. It's just an intersection. Um, yeah, th- and that point, nobody seemed to be able to communicate that point effectively in 2018. And I put myself into that category because that was another point that we we thundered on through the uh, the, the campaign. I'm wondering as well, too, though. Um, if I could, so if I can add yeah, that. Yeah, please, go there, ahead. We just, like, I asked, and there are 10,000 intersections in Winnipeg. 10,000 intersections. People cross thousands and thousands of intersections in Winnipeg every day. And, and I think that perspective needs to be kept in mind as well, that this is an intersection. Well, and, and, you know, 
the community around Portage and Maine is about as close to a walkable community as you can get. I mean, you really can shop and recreate and, you know, take advantage of, you know, a wide variety of amenities and, and things without taking a car. Um, so it always seemed the worst kind of irony that that was the one place where you couldn't walk, you know, on, on the, at grade across the intersection. At the uh, press conference that, that I held related to this, uh, I, I invited the three downtown councillors, Councillors Gilroy, Councillor Santos, Councillor Rollins, and Councillor Rollins also chairs the uh, Planning Development Committee. I also invited Councillor Lukes because she chairs the Public Works Committee, which deals with traffic and roads and sidewalks and, and transit as well. But the three downtown councillors are all in favour and always have been in favour yep. of, of opening this intersection in, in their ward. Right or their shared ward, uh, so that pedestrians can cross. So the um, uh, the the move forward, uh, uh, you know, to doing this, and you did mention it very briefly. But the other looming issue that uh, could have really dictated whether barriers go back to Portage Maine is the transit master plan, um, which has enormous longer term implications for Portage Maine and for Main Street in particular. So friend of the podcast, free press uh, columnist and noted architect Brent Bellamy uh, has been very, uh, you know, uh, uh, explicit and consistent about the fact that once the master plan, all the different parts of the master plan on Main Street and Portage and Main kick into place, it doesn't really make sense to limit uh, uh, surface access to that, that intersection. Is that, that's also did play a role in, in your decision. It, it very much did play a role. You know, this, this, in many ways, this is a matter of timing. Uh, we have the information we didn't have before. Uh, we have lower traffic volumes. We are, but, but we are making a major and exciting change in our transit system. We need a modern transit service for a modern and growing city. And so the timing of implementing the, that the significant change to our transit plan, um, will really, really fits with the, the, the need for us to look seriously at whether or not to keep the barricades up at Portage of Maine. And to me, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense at this point when we're trying to do all we're trying to do with mm-hmm. transit and make it a, uh, our city more accessible, encourage more people to use transit. Um, now, now's the time to, to make the decision to create, uh, you know, the changes at this intersection that also assist us in maximizing uh, our transit goals. So for those people who maybe uh, haven't looked at the copy of the master plan that's sitting on the corner of their, their desk, what does the master, if it's all fully implemented, what is the master plan? What are the implications for Portage and Main and Main Street? Because it's, it's some pretty cool stuff. It is. So. Um, I don't have all the details, you know, off off uh, by heart and in, in memory, but what we're going to do is is really think of it um, moving to a spine and feeder system, and so there'll be spine routes that run through Portage of Maine, and that means that there'll be routes that are more frequent and more reliable. Individuals will be able to go to one of those routes, and if if you don't exactly know what time the bus is coming, don't worry. There'll be one here. There'll be one here on those main routes within five to seven minutes. You're going to catch a bus, and so buses and transit service will move much more efficiently through the downtown. The plan is to take them off of Graham Avenue, which is a major bus corridor right now, and move all of those over to to Portage Avenue. There'll be new bus stops put in place. 
Um, and the long-term goal is to have the beautiful Via Rail Station uh, actually be part of at Broadway, one, yeah. at, at Broadway, at Maine and Broadway, be incorporated into being a major stop as well. I mean, that's that's really exciting. That's if if folks haven't seen it or been in it. Next time you're close to Maine and Broadway, just park your car, walk through the Via Rail Station. It's one of the most beautiful buildings we have in this city. Um, so so a new a new spine and feeder system, which is going to make transit much more efficient, much more reliable, much more effective. There are a lot of people for whom transit is the only means of, of transportation. It, they depend upon transit. They don't have their own car. But then there's a lot of individuals, and I'm one of them. I have the option to drive around the city of Winnipeg. But from time to time, and I try to do it frequently, I get on the bus and I choose the bus as an option. We're making other major investments in transit right now as well. We are investing in a safer transit system for our operators, our transit operators, and and our transit riders as well. Um, The biggest change that we've made this year is implementing the community safety officers, which just a few a week ago started on our transit buses, and they're individuals who are trained to de-escalate situations and make sure that bus operators and and riders are more protected. So they're they're on our bus buses, they're around our bus stops. And um, the other thing we're doing as well is we're making a major investment in the PEGO system, which is the pay system, the, the, the pay box. Yeah, you're not going to continue calling it PEGO. I mean, that's a four-letter word in the city <laughs> now, isn't it? It'll have another Almost. name. It, it may have another name, but the, uh, it, <laughs> this, this idea of, of going to a modern uh, transit service. So there'll be easier ways and, and more ways to pay your fare. All that to say, we're making substantial investments in our transit system. And, uh, and and it will have implications, positive implications for how transit buses are routed through our downtown, including Portage of Maine. So the, the voting results from 2018, uh, and perhaps not surprisingly, showed a pretty stark contrast in the opinions of suburban uh, Winnipeggers and those who live and work closer to downtown. And, uh, you know, so this is, I, I'm going to say this is a, uh, a dichotomy created mostly by perception, not reality. Because when you really get into the reality of it, um, you know, it, it, as you say, it, it's just an intersection. It's not even the busiest intersection. It's not, it, you know, it, it has no potential to cripple vehicular traffic flow through downtown. Uh, that wasn't persuasive in 2018, particularly for people who... Uh, I refer to as having maybe a casual relationship with downtown, an infrequent relationship. What messaging uh, do you think uh, you and other members of council who are going to support this motion? What? How can you win more minds, hearts and minds uh, about you know e- easing the concern over reopening Portage in Maine? Uh, because uh, you know, according to my ex-Twitter account, uh, there are still quite a lot of them that uh, fear this. What I know about Winnipeggers is most Winnipeggers want their elected officials to make practical decisions. And the information that we have now that we didn't have in 2018, if I took this, I'm confident if I took the information to anyone anywhere in the city, anywhere in the city, and said, here's the new information we have. I think that most of them, the majority would say, well, make the practical decision. And the practical decision is 
you know, is now to open it to, port, to, to pedestrian traffic. Well, the information we have now shows that this, frankly, is the best decision for drivers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in, and I, and I live outside of the downtown. I don't live in the downtown. Um, a lot of the people who interact with Portage Maine are individuals who drive from other parts of the city in the suburbs. I don't think they want five years of traffic congestion at Portage of Maine. This is a this is a better decision for those that drive into the downtown or through the downtown as well, in in my mind. And so I think this is about, quite frankly, m- making the decisions that we need to make that will avoid seventy three million dollars and the the need to spend that money again at a higher cost in future years. That's not even considering the condition of the concrete. Our staff has said mm-hmm. in the report that they provided to us. We should also check that out. We don't have a number on that, but we should check out the, You're the condition about of the, the concrete. The and the, for I was going to say yeah. exactly in, in the concourse underground. So you know that's we haven't even talked about that. But and I, I, I frankly think Winnipegers want us to deal with this matter once for all. I want to deal with this matter once for all and get on to more. I would say urgent and important yeah. uh, things that we have to focus on, uh, like safety in our community, mm-hmm. homelessness. Uh, sewage and water treatment, housing, uh, all of those decisions, uh, issues that are really at, at the top of, of of the file of things that we have to tackle. So decommissioning the concourse, and for those people who maybe can't envision, but there are four properties that have a lower level commercial retail spaces, sort of B1, we'll call it the first basement level, and they are connected by a circular walkway. Right. Uh, sometimes called the circus. Sometimes at the concourse. Yeah. Concourse, yeah. Which is a city-owned asset, yes? It is. It's a okay. city-owned asset. And the, con- it, the concourse, yeah. the circle is the city-owned asset below, right below Portage Humane, as you indicated before. Right. So, um, A, decommissioning, let's talk, because that's going to cost money. It will. Uh, and uh, 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 B, um, what does decommissioning mean to the the flow of people underground. Well, I guess there won't be flow of people underground. Um, you know, uh, and maybe we can get on to, have you heard from the property owners yet about what, how they feel about it? There will be a cost to decommission the concourse. And we've asked our staff for early numbers and very rough estimate, a very wide range. They said mm-hmm. it could be anywhere from $20 million to $50 million. So decommissioning is not free. There is an investment we'd have to make. A one-time investment nonetheless. So we need more information from our public service to really refine that cost and really talk about what options Mm -hmm. are available to decommission. What does decommissioning look like? But ultimately, you're right. To decommission that circus or that concourse would mean that connection underground from one property Mm -hmm. to another property would be closed off. The businesses that are right below the B1, as you indicate, that are right below the respective properties, those could and would likely still exist. I had uh, spoken to each, I've spoken to each of the property owners on the four corners in advance of the announcement that we made. Didn't want them to be surprised, so mm-hmm. I gave them a heads up. All of them were very supportive of opening Portage Main to pedestrian traffic they at have street been. level. Yeah. And they have been, you're yeah. right. Um, for sure, they, they understand that to move, for the city to decommission its own property, which is the concourse under mm-hmm. Portage Main, would have implications for their businesses. Yeah. There's no doubt uh, in, in their respective under their respective buildings. So I'm not going to speak 
mm-hmm. for those property owners as to what their thoughts are on on the impact of decommissioning. But it, it would have uh, it would have an impact, and so people that would want to access their B one businesses below mm-hmm. their properties would have to go through street level. So, and just to be clear, though, um, like in using the biggest numbers, so it might be seventy three million dollars to do all of the direct and collateral work to replace the membrane to keep the concourse. It could be as much as $50 million to decommission uh, and reinforce that, that, you know, so the intersection doesn't fall, you know, into a big sinkhole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the real advantage of option B is that you don't have five years of uh, costly and disruptive traffic interruptions. That's exactly correct. And, you know, my, my office gets the calls and the emails as do every, every counselor gets the calls and the emails and, and fair, um, with motorists who get frustrated in the summertime when we have road construction. And over the last several years, I get it. They've had reason to be because we've made record investments yep. over the last several years in our road renewal program. There's been a lot of construction. To have up to five years of traffic cones and barricades at Portage and Main in different places at different time would be chaos. So is that, that's the point uh, that you hope resonates with people in all areas of the city. Uh, There's no option here that doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, There's going to be, you know, a lot of money spent. And we're not even talking about the cost of, the transit upgrades, uh, you know, s- streetscaping or anything else that needs to be done to the the, the top, uh, the surface level. Um, but that, you know, like it's clearly it's it could be 50 percent less expensive at at minimum than trying to save the concourse. When this information was put in front of me to say, here's the cost of, of, of this option, I probably should say the status quo. The status mm-hmm. quo is repair the membrane, do it again in 30 to 40 years, interrupt traffic for up to five years, um, and don't maximize the, the, what we could do with the transit master plan. Yeah. Compared to, well, if we close the concourse and open the, the intersection, like the thousand, uh, 10,000 other intersections in Winnipeg mm-hmm. to pedestrian traffic, then there will be a savings. We don't have to do it again in 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. And we can maximize the, the, the transit master plan and it's, it's better for downtown residents and businesses as well. When those two are put before me, my view is I think the practical right thing to do at this point is to make the decision to open the intersection to pedestrians, decommission the concourse. So I'm guessing that uh, in whatever option we do choose, my dream of having a suspended observation deck above the intersection, th- that's not going to happen. That is not on my radar, Dan, right at this point. At this point. So okay. I'm not, um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't envision that happening. I, as I said, th- this intersection has taken up a lot of focus political for, bandwidth for, yeah. for, for a lot of years. It's, it's a key point of our discussion. I am not saying it's not important, mm-hmm. but I'm really trying to look at this, if I can say, in perspective. We right now have 
uh, a strong focus on the North End treatment plant and combined sewer overflows and keeping raw sewage out of our rivers. We have a strong focus on the fact that we're a growing city. We need more housing. We need more mm-hmm. housing quickly and the infrastructure to go with that. A strong focus right now on the fact that we still have too many people living unsheltered and living homeless. We've got too much crime that's happening right now. There's just so many things that are really, really critical at this mm-hmm. point to focus on. And I want us to be setting our focus on that. Mm-hmm. Said it a moment ago. I, I want us to deal with this intersection, frankly, once for all. I think the timing for all of us mm-hmm. is has, is affording us the opportunity to make this decision. It was closed 45 years ago with 40-year agreements with property owners. Those 40-year agreements have expired. Now the membrane is worn out, and so we have to make a decision one way or the other. To me, let's make the decision that is practical and puts us in best stead and position for the future years. So I'm not uh, saying that they want to, but if the four property owners got together and decided that the concourse was essential to the business plans of their properties, is there any, you know, if they, if they volunteered to pay the costs associated with saving the concourse, which the implication of that would be the, you know, the traffic disruption, would you, would you try to dissuade them? Would you hear them? Like, I'm not saying that that's even, economically feasible for right. what they want to do. I'm assuming it probably isn't, but I do, it does. it's an interesting scenario that if, if the four property owners got together and said, we want to save the concourse, would you be open to that conversation? Uh, to this point, no, none of the property owners have had that direct discussion with me or even right. floated the idea with me that they might be interested yep. in purchasing the concourse. If, if, uh, if, if private property owners wanted to come together and to purchase the concourse, at least wanted to have the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, we'd, we'd have the conversation. I think the point of the matter is what I'm trying to avoid, given the information mm-hmm. we have now as mayor, and I'm asking council to make, you know, mm-hmm. obviously the same decision, is to not make an investment of $73 million, probably more, mm-hmm. to save the concourse, and then to have to do ask taxpayers to do it again in 30 to 40 years yep. in a future generation. So, okay, so that's an interesting perspective that dovetails nicely to a broader discussion of infrastructure and effluent, <laughs> mm-hmm. for lack of a better, well, I had a better term, but Adam will just bleat me in the final There's cut. There's only in. so many times I can hit that button down. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> but, you know, we, the city has been somewhat uh, uh, transfixed by the um, the unfettered flow of untreated sewage uh, into the Red River, the result of a 70-year-old pipe that failed uh, and um, uh, exposed yet another uh, pressing infrastructure need. And when you combine the, you know, you mentioned North End sewage treatment, um, you know, uh, rapid transit, Portage in Maine, and then the the non infrastructure things like homelessness, and um, so how did we get to a point where we were? It seemed that we were surprised that seventy year old pipes were on the verge of of uh, collapse. Is that an unfair point? Well, in, in, in fact, if I mean the pipes were put in in the seventies, so they're actually only fifty years old. Okay, that I think that's part of the surprise, Dan. So you expected them to last long. I think we did expect them to last okay. longer. And and to their credit, I think I want to take the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity to yep. remind all the listeners that the way the leak was discovered is because our staff does regular inspection and maintenance on these pipes. So these are two pipes, just to remind everyone. There's sewer pipes that go under the rivers at certain points. 
the sewer pipes that failed uh, go under the Red River near the St. Patel Bridge under kind of Abenoji Mikana or Bishop Grandin's people, you know, it was called for a long time. During a regular inspection of those pipes in November of 2023, staff discovered one of the two pipes was leaking. They closed down that pipe, moved all the flow to the second pipe and started putting in place a bypass system. They started kind of mobilizing and going to build a bypass system. Before they could get the bypass system operating, the second pipe catastrophically failed. And we had the horrific event of 228 million liters of raw sewage, sometimes diluted, but raw sewage flowing into the Red River. You know, I was asked once by someone else in media, what do you, you know, how do you feel? I feel awful. Mm-hmm. Everyone feels awful. Nobody wants um, raw, even diluted sewage flowing into our river system and flowing into our lakes. Our staff worked very hard with the contractors to try to get that bypass system in place as quickly as possible. The bypass system requires two pumps. They put it in place, the one pump started to fail. And because the one pump started to fail, we could only use one pump for a time on that bypass system. And at peak flow periods, it couldn't handle things. So there was some spillage at peak flows. And I'm glad to say that thankfully, the second pump is fixed. The bypass system is working. There's no more raw sewage flowing into the river. That bypass system, though, is going to be in place probably till 2025 because it's going to take a year plus to replace those two pipes that, that go under the river. We as a city are we're already, though, uh, on track to invest billions in infrastructure for wastewater. The North End Sewage Treatment Plant, the North End Wastewater Plant <laughs> that we're undertaking right now is the largest, most expensive, most complex pro- project the city of Winnipeg has ever undertaken. The price tag of that is over $2 billion. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of the second phase, or department, we started the second phase. Well, the second phase alone is a billion dollars. We're also doing combined sewer overflow work. Just permit me a minute. What that is, is you know, older parts of Winnipeg, like many other Where older the, cities. Stormwater and, and gray water run together. They do. And it creates twice the, the volume or more. Exactly. Yeah. So we're separating the one pipe yeah. to two pipes so the stormwater can go to the river and the wastewater goes to the treatment plant. We have a program that we have just ramped up. We have been investing $30 million a year approximately mm-hmm. in that combined sewer overflow program. To his credit, Councillor Brian Mays several years ago said to me when I chaired finance, he said, we should really increase that. And he pushed hard and he was right. So now, as of this year, we've gone from $30 million investment to $45 million investment per year. Mm-hmm. So we're doing more to separate our sewers. Right at that, at that uh, bridge water crossing, where the pipes failed, we are also building in, in the southwest part of the city of Winnipeg what's called the Southwest Interceptor, which is a massive backup valve for uh, for wastewater. Uh, that was already on the books. Work has already started on that. And so all that to say, it's, let's be honest, it's not sewage treatment and sewer pipes mm-hmm. are not exciting things, but they're critical. We're focused on them. We're investing billions into them. So... I'm not sure you're going to agree with the premise, but um, for some years, a couple of years now, I've been writing about the fact that I think that the I think that the city, in you know what's really been a two decade long effort to ramp up spending on roads, um, it, it's been a massive increase in spending annual spending on roads, and it's 
as you mentioned again in our, our pre-tape uh, conversation, you know, like, uh, you know, people are aware of it because they're stuck in traffic watching dump trucks back up and, you know, block traffic. So um, the amount of road work we're doing is, is quite amazing. Roads get a lot of attention because people see them. Uh, because uh, bumpy road, potholes, there's an immediate reaction with the local government. Uh, People have it, to take their vehicle to the shop, you know, to yeah, replace shocks and that's right. tires. Uh, I, I doubt you got many calls about sewer pipes until one exploded under the Red River. Um, is there any argument to the fact, though, that we need to moderate a little bit the amount of money that we're spending on roads? Uh, let's say within the context of an argument that we're making slow progress in reducing the number of roads that need the attention and shift some of that to some of the other priorities that you've, um, that you've talked about because, um, you know, potholes are, are really inconvenient, but not nearly as inconvenient as being told that you can't flush your toilet. So, uh, you know, any, is there any, anything credible in what I've just said? Well, before I answer, let me take the opportunity because you raised yeah. it to, to sincerely thank the residents in Southwest Winnipeg who over the last week or so, a couple of weeks, when we asked them, you know, to try to cottage moderate, rules. Right, yeah. the cottage rules reduce their, their water flow. Those are participated. I, I do sincerely thank you. It was obviously an inconvenience. We didn't want to do it, but thank you for helping out. The challenge and the fact is that we have an aging city and we need both. We need investment in roads. We need investment in, in wastewater infrastructure. We need the investments in infrastructure. For the temporary inconvenience of road closures, at the end of the day, what motorists get, and don't forget our buses drive on those roads as well, mm-hmm. commercial traffic that moves our economy drives on those mm-hmm. roads. At the end of that construction work, you get a nice road that's good for 40 to 50 years. And people are pleased that they don't have to take their vehicle to the mechanic to replace the shocks yet again because they've hit another pothole. We need investment in, in our infrastructure roads. So we have to continue to do that. But without a doubt, we need infrastructure, wastewater infrastructure and, and water infrastructure to also be prioritized. And we are making that investment. One of the things that is really important is that the federal government right now is focusing on housing, and and I appreciate that, and we've told them we appreciate that. In fact, they've given the city of Winnipeg, they're giving the city one hundred twenty-two million dollars for, for specifically for housing. But every house, every apartment needs a water pipe and a sewer pipe, a sidewalk and a road. So you can't have investments in housing alone without the corresponding investment in infrastructure right. that, that enables it. It's, it's growth-oriented, growth-supporting infrastructure. It needs to be also prioritized. The North End Pollution Control Center, North End Sewage Treatment Plant, is a project that is you know, really ultimately being done in three phases. The federal and provincial governments have joined the city of Winnipeg in funding that project mm-hmm. through an initial agreement. It's called ICIP, or Investing in Canada Infrastructure Program. I'll call it ICIP for short. The challenge we have right now is that that agreement was signed several years ago when costs were much different than they are today. In the initial agreement, the principle of this federal ICIP program is that the federal government will pay 40% of the project costs, the province 33, the city 27. Well, costs have gone up significantly in the last several years. 
We have yet to get, though, though I've been asking. An agreement to... Well, we've been an increase in funding corresponding from those senior levels of government. If we don't get that, the ratio of funding on the second phase alone is going to be that instead of 40%, the federal government will only be paying 22% or 28%. Instead of 33%, the province will only be paying 19%. And the city, instead of taxpayers or ratepayers, instead of paying 20% of the cost... 27% 27% of the cost will be paying 58% of the cost. That will mean significant impact on water and sewer rates if if we don't get assistance from the senior levels. Mm-hmm. I was just in Ottawa earlier this week with the Big City Mayor's Caucus. We raised this. I raised this specifically with one of the federal ministers. I used the North End plant as, as illustration of the kind of help we need, financial assistance municipalities need for infrastructure to support housing. Uh, raised this with the, with the premier as well, so he's he's well aware of it. So that's a long answer to say you're right. Infrastructure needs to be prioritized, uh, but wastewater infrastructure uh, also needs to be at the top of the list. So I'll, I'll take one more run at this. You know, finding the right balance or mix between streams of infrastructure funding. How much is enough money uh, on an annual basis to spend on roads? Like so that we're we're making small but incremental progress in reducing the number of uh, major and minor streets that need repair. Because I, I think that's a, a a figure or a number I've been chasing for a number of years. And I've, I, you know, I, I, I talking to people at Manitoba Heavy Construction, for example, they believe that these numbers can be, you know, we can create a number every year. It may fluctuate with inflation, but that we know we're spending enough and we're not spending too much and possibly taking money away from other worthy infra- infrastructure needs. The, the, yeah, the, the, the challenge to find that balance, it's a very fair question. The challenge to find the balance of how much is the right amount, of course, depends who you talk to. Mm-hmm. You're going to get different answers. But we can't uh, put all of our investment in one area and starve the other. And that's why I think you mentioned that the roads budget gets more focus. It has because it's been record roads budget. And as you say, people see the traffic disruptions. They see the road work. Mm-hmm. Nobody's seen, nobody's seen when we're slipping kind of a new sleeve into an old sewer pipe yeah. to, to imp- improve its service yeah. uh, and, and extend its life. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very serious about investing in the pipes underground that we have water pipes, sewer pipes, Combined sewer overflow, sewer interceptors in the North End plant. So we're, we're really at the point where we're, we're making record investment there as well. Mm-hmm. And we're making investment in uh, transit is, is another infrastructure, transit infrastructure, whether it's buses or transit lanes and bus stops. That's also infrastructure that supports housing and, and, and growth. We're making significant investment there too. We have a transit master plan, which will be historic. Yeah. No, it's, and I, wrote about the transit master plan and uh if half of it comes to fruition i think people should notice a lot of positive changes the i think the other issue that's come up uh inadvertently related to uh infrastructure and cost sharing was the federal infrastructure minister's comments about possibly the the federal government possibly shifting focus away from big new mega projects and now he, the problem was he didn't really define what he was talking about. So it, it led to a lot of speculation. Um, but there is like, you know, the idea is not crazy 
I mean, people that are most like, you know, where climate change is a top of mind concern, where they would like to see much more aggressive funding in transit, would say, don't build new roadway assets that in 30 to 40 years need to be, need massive uh, costs of replacement. Don't build those. Fix what you've got. Improve transit. And, and make sure you're spending enough money on those other areas of infrastructure. So I'm not asking you whether or not that's going to kill the Chief Pegwis Trail or whether the feds are not going to be involved in funding it. But, but seriously, there's something there about not building more than you can afford to repair and maintain in the future, isn't there? Yeah, I, I heard the comment. I know the minister, federal minister started to walk it back pretty quickly. Uh, a day later, and, and they were working hard to provide some clarity. If it was as simple as choose one or the other, mm-hmm. you know, we'd be having a different conversation. The The practical reality is it's not as simple as one or the other. Both are needed. We, we have this focus on the fact that we are growing. We're a growing city. We're a growing country. We've, you know, more and more immigration. We know we have a, a shortage of, of housing, so we're focused hard on, you know, focused mm-hmm. on building housing. As I, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, housing needs the corresponding infrastructure. Buses, you can, we can work hard, and we are working hard to make sure the transit is more available for more people as a choice. Buses need roads. Mm-hmm. People need sidewalks. Uh, so this this growth enabling infrastructure cannot be forgotten about. It's also very, very critical to provide the services and create the kind of cities that, that people that people need. We're a growing city. Not everybody is going to live in an infill house mm-hmm. in an old neighborhood or in an apartment building or a condo that's multifamily. Some people want to and will choose to live in a brand new house in a greenfield development. We, we can't say we're only going to have one, invest in one and not the other. We, we have to invest in both, smartly, mm-hmm. strategically, doing the best to, to know the, the impact of it. We also have to keep in mind that trade is, is critical to our local economy. We have a huge transportation uh, infrastructure uh, you know, here in Winnipeg, we've got many, many trucking companies, many for whom Winnipeg is their headquarters, and Manitoba is their headquarters. Our trade, you know, flows on, on our roadway system. And so we need to make sure that uh, those roadways are, are in good shape as well. And so I know some would like to see it just to, to paint it as a simple thing. Well, if we just invest in this one thing over here, it's 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 better and and you know, it'll be better for our for our, our our environment. Cities and life is just more complicated than that, more nuanced mm-hmm. than that. And we, I think, have to take thoughtful approaches to try to be obviously good stewards of our environment, but also to grow our economy and provide the housing uh, that, uh, that in communities that people need. I mean, a lot of this is, um, you know, somewhat fantastical imaginings. Uh, for But, you know, when we start to imagine a city that's more sustainable, so that a city has less of a future infrastructure liability, uh, you know, is, is got the size of a community. It's generating, re- you know, own source revenues that can pay for infrastructure. You know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, the Chief Pegwas Trail shouldn't be like, you know, a six lane freeway. It should be a BRT, you know, like that, you know, that you're going to extend a BRT 
with feeder routes, dedicated feeder routes, so that um, the vehicular traffic on Chief Pegwa's trail that we have now would be less, you know, that people would have a, a way of moving around. It, I would say, though, that I don't, I mean, the transit master plan, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, but I think that debates about things like the Chief Pegwa's trail and transit seem to be conducted on two sides of the civic government brain. Uh, where, you know, it's not, uh, you know, and we're not really, because I, I just, I'm not sure that I see how extending the Chief Pegwis Trail makes us more sustainable. Uh, the, the idea of the, the, the caution you, you, you mentioned to yeah. make sure we're not having these conversations separately in silos, you know, transportation master plan, which is right now getting updated. We don't have it now. Transportation master plan and, and, um, and the transit master plan shouldn't be spoken of in isolation separate mm-hmm. from you. I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you on that. What an extension of the Chief Pegasus Trail could ultimately look like, for sure, should be and and could be open for discussion. Um, But keep in mind, one of the things that we're focused on is, as we talked about, making transit more available for more people. We're moving to electric buses. Yeah. So we we we're, we're we're treating wastewater in such a way to protect the lake. So we absolutely have our eye on sustainability right. and our environment. Not only that, I mentioned a moment ago the housing money we got from the federal government, the 122 million. The first tranche of it we received, 30 million. The focus is going to be building along corridors next to transit lines, right. multifamily, affordable housing. So our first investment of that funding goes towards sustainability uh, and, and accessibility and, and trying to say let's let's do infill here on malls, mall parking lots, which are big pads of concrete should be housing on those. I campaign mm-hmm. on it. We should have more housing on mall parking lots. We should have more housing on corridors. And as far as future investments like the Chief Pecos Trail, which I'm still, I still believe we need to do, but how we do that and what it looks like, I think is, is certainly open for discussion. So how we do that and what it looks like, is that one of the reasons why it wasn't mentioned in the, the budget, the proposed budget that was tabled, is that um, there needs to be not maybe reimagining is too strong, but you need to consider all possible options for what that might look like. The reason that Chief Pavegris Trail project extension is not in the budget, as well as the Keniston Boulevard projects, plural, because there's mm-hmm. many there. People keep talking about it being widened. It widens only one of several projects there, including the replacement of an old bridge. Yeah. Right? That has to be replaced. <laughs> we, we, yeah. we, right? Uh, think Arlington. Uh, you know, we have old infrastructure. St. James Bridge is an old bridge that needs to be replaced. The reason that Chief Pecos Trail Extension and the Keniston projects were not in the budget is because we are waiting on reports back mm-hmm. from our staff. Uh, that will provide updates in the cost of all of those projects and the basically the return on investments of those projects as well. Right. Okay. Um, I should mention that it's not all, you know, uh, raw poop and, uh, you know, infrastructure woes and whatnot, that uh, it's also Winnipeg 150 this year. Uh, so this is the 150th anniversary of the establishment of the Winnipeg Charter. The city of Winnipeg held its first council meeting on January 19th, 1874. So we're 150 years uh, as a city uh, this this year in 2024. And, um, wow. Uh, I'm Dare not a- I even ask? 150 <laughs> years since Winnipeg itself held its first council meeting. 53 years since Unicity. Is this emblematic of uh, aging infrastructure? <laughs> 
I, I, I think that may be the case. I remember quick story when I, of course, I served on council for two terms before becoming mayor, served as the council of St. James, which has some very old houses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some, some old infrastructure where there was a water main break. And I, I asked the staff, how old is this pipe? And they said, oh, 80 plus years, right? So we do have aging infrastructure in some of our old communities without question. Um, uh, mayor Scott Gillingham, thanks for being here. This is your second appearance on the podcast after I, um, clip, you know, punch your frequent podcasting card. You'll be one punch short of becoming officially a friend of the podcast. Oh, very good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you it, get two more punches, you get to guest host. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> we just, that could be dangerous. <laughs> we just give, we just give you the microphone and let you talk about whatever you want. Uh, no, I really appreciate you being, uh, here today. It's an important day. And, uh, last, uh, Will the intersection, will Portage and Main reopen? Yes or no? Yes, it will. Okay. There you have it. Not here first, but definitely definitively here. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Huge thanks to Mayor of Winnipeg, Scott Gillingham, for taking the time to join us here. Almost beneath Portage and Main. I think we're technically underneath the uh, circle in front of the Fairmont Hotel. Other hotels are, of course, available, but that's the one we're beneath. And uh, it was really exciting to get to hear from him his perspective, but I think also his convictions in making this issue in some ways a non-issue as he looks more holistically at what the city are trying to do. Yeah, the, the most important word he used was practical. Yeah. When he was elected uh, as Winnipeg mayor, I dubbed him, I don't think it's caught on with anybody, but I dubbed him the mechanic uh, because I thought he was a details guy. He was a nuts and bolts guy. And, and it, the implication being that he was more practical than partisan. And I think he's really showing that with this, uh, you know, with this uh, decision to sponsor um a motion to reopen Portage in Maine. Uh, I, I do think it'll be a cue to some uh, of the uh, less stable members of uh, council to go on uh, rants for another plebiscite. I'm sort of hoping um, that the rest of council somehow, you know, uh, maintains its sanity. And uh, although I will say that like back in the day, way, way, way million years ago, when I was a city hall bureau chief, a friend of mine who worked for CBC radio told me that city hall was the intellectual free zone. That seems slightly mean, uh, but I can just about see it. Yeah, uh, possibly mean, but potentially accurate, depending on what happens <laughs> with the mayor's motion to reopen the intersection. Anyways, uh, thank you to you, Adam, uh, who help, helped out with uh, uh, Negan off doing important author, you know, academic work. And uh, thank you to CJNU. Uh, thank you as well to editor Paul Simin and the Winnipeg Free Press for continuing for some reason to allow us to do this. And uh, to everybody who's got the time to tune in and follow us, uh, Miigwech, thank you, and we will see you again in the very near future. Music